Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Today, our text is Mark 6, 30-44, as we continue to look at the real Jesus by looking at the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is. So here's what the text says. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were sheep like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of wages. Are we to go and spend that much bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do we have? He said, go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to all, have all the people sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is one of the more popular accounts of uh, a ministry instance of Jesus that many of us have heard. And when I look at this, uh, one of the first pictures that comes to mind is, you know, they're sitting on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee and they throw out their checkered tablecloths and they're all sitting down for a picnic, the wind blowing through their air and and just overlooking a nice scene with a great speaker at a great conference. I mean, you can't have a better, better conference speaker than Jesus, right? The only problem is they forgot their picnic baskets. So no one's got food. And Jesus tries, decides to solve this by doing a miracle and feeding 5,000 men. Now, there could be, it could be as many as 20,000 people there. We don't know because the text says that there were 5,000 men. And we know that that doesn't count women and children. We don't know how many were there. It also, in that day, could easily have meant that they only counted the men who were 20 years and older because that was one traditional way of counting men in the Jewish era of that time. And, and sometimes they even only counted the family heads of households. So we know that there were probably somewhere between 10 and 20 thousand people there this nice kind of pastoral scene of people eating in the grass and looking at the sea and jesus does an amazing miracle but if we stop at that picture we miss the entire point of this passage because this passage is not about a nice pastoral scene of a picnic on a hillside and jesus doing a miracle to provide for our needs when we were stupid enough to walk out to the country without food This is actually a picture of a revolution that Jesus is inviting us to. And you may say, well, that that really, that's stretching the text. Revolution, where do you see that? 
It's actually seen in the history of the day and also in the parallel passages, in, the, uh, in, the, in particular in the eyewitness account in John about this exact same event. First of all, we know that Jesus and the disciples, it says in the text, were exhausted and they went away in the boat to go to a solitary place. Well, we know where they were and, and scholars and political historians of that day will tell you flat out that the area where they were, when they went out into the solitary place nearby, it was the home of the freedom fighters of the day, the zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples is labeled as a zealot. He was of the zealots. They were the freedom fighters. They were out in the isolated places in the hills hiding and trying to regroup because they were basically guerrilla bands trying to, violent, to get a violent overthrow of the Roman rule of the Jews of the day. John 6.15 highlights this a little bit more when it says the people came to him out of the hills and, and at one point it says they tried to come to Jesus and force him and make him their king because they'd watched him all day and saw, man, this guy has power, this guy has spiritual authority, this guy has not just spiritual authority, but he can make things happen. And he's eloquent. And they wanted to make him their king and force him to lead the revolution. Now, we've done this passage out of order uh, in the in, in our look at Mark, mainly because uh, last week uh, you heard Christine preach, and didn't she bring a great message last week? I, I I had three or four people even between services today come up to me and just say tangible things that God challenged them to take a risk in, and I want to I want to encourage you to respond to that message last week to take risks of faith. But we did it out of order mainly because uh, Christine was more drawn to that passage, so I said she could do what she was drawn to, and I'd do this passage. Actually, I want to do this passage, so I was actually pretty happy uh, that it worked out that way. But if you recall then two weeks ago, the passage immediately preceding this is what Jeremy did and did such a fantastic job talking about Herod and our faith response in times like that and our ability to respond to God when he comes to us. But in that Herod illustration, you easily get to see the corruption, the evil that these zealots were wanting to overthrow. And we easily see that revolution, even violent revolution, could theoretically have been justified under that kind of rule. And yet, Jesus teaches us a little bit of a different way to go about revolution today. And he starts by inviting us to be part of that revolution. In verse 34, in the area, we see the, the, him seeing the large crowd. And all these people have run around the lake, and I'm sure on the way they were running around, going through the little villages, walking through people's farmyards, you know, whatever, yelling, hey, I saw Jesus do miracles, and I'm following him, because they're all going, what are you running for? And, and they're just inviting people all along the way to come see him. And Jesus, absolutely exhausted, gets out of the boat and sees the people, and he says, the text says, Jesus had compassion on them, because they were like sheep, without a shepherd. R.C. Sproul, a, a great uh, contemporary theologian, says this word for compassion is only used in the New Testament of Jesus. And it's, and it's this word that just gets at this deep, almost from the gut, deep sense of overwhelming, overpowering tenderness that Jesus feels for the people. When we look at the gospel accounts and we normally think about Jesus, we think about how he's so compassionate for the people who have disease, so, so compassionate for the people caught in addiction and pain and, and suffering. And, and yet, if you honestly look at the Jesus accounts, the eyewitness accounts, and study this word compassion, this word compassion is most frequently used in this context. 
the context of the compassion being focused on the people are sheep without a shepherd. And that's a very strong biblical term. We actually see it first used in Numbers 27 when Moses is praying to God saying, I'm getting old. Who is to succeed me so that these people will have leadership and they will not be like people like sheep without a shepherd and be lost wandering in the wilderness. And and we see the answer to that prayer there being Joshua. And we see this term being used over and over again in the prophets in the Old Testament where they they talk about how the people are so caught in sin and the leaders are so corrupt that they are people like sheep without a shepherd, (coughs) harassed, wounded, hurt, lost. We see the prophets referring to Jesus himself as the good shepherd, the shepherd king, the, the shepherd who will lay his life down for his sheep. And then in Matthew 9, 35 through 37, Jesus says, uses this term in a way that is kind of the summary blanket term for all of his ministry. The text actually says, Matthew records in the text there, that everywhere he went, it says Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, basically meaning everywhere Jesus went, he had this same reaction of compassion. And it says he, was, he had compassion because the people who were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, You see, the focus of his compassion isn't even so much on the pain itself. The focus of his compassion is that there's a lack of a healthy enough leadership so that the people are lost, they're harassed, they're helpless. And then in that same text in Matthew, Jesus goes on to invite us to pray with him. He says, would you pray to the Lord of the harvest? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And implied in that text is not only that Jesus is asking us to pray that prayer, but by his actions and by his words there and elsewhere, he's asking us to be the answer to his prayer. Because can we really see that people around us need intentional friendship that will lead them to faith? Can we really see that the issue of the, of the church and our lack of ability to completely transform our culture is not a glitz issue? It's not a message issue. It's, it's a volunteer issue. It's an intentional friendship issue. It's a, it's a worker issue. It's a leadership issue. Because people all around us, like this text says of Jesus' day, are ripe for harvest. They're ripe to be enraptured by the grace and friendship and love of God. And Jesus is asking us to be that to people. You see, the real focus of this whole passage, the real focus of the revolution Jesus is inviting us to, starts in understanding the depth of compassion that he felt everywhere he went. And for us to be an answer to that prayer to be driven, to experience that passion and live a life of mission to the people around us, expressing that compassion to them rather than continuing to be driven by the passions that drive us every day, whether it's for work or for success or for whatever, to be driven by this compassion. And that's what Jesus wants all of us to feel. We all see a need for revolution in our culture. We all see a need for change around us. We see it in our families. We see it in our friends. We see it in our workplaces. We see it in our nation. 
But the simplest response that Jesus is saying as we move around the lake trying to follow him, trying to be where he's going to be next, that the first response for us is to simply invite people to come with us out of compassion, not of argument, out of, out of love, not, not fear, and actually inviting them to be a part of us here as well at Quest. And there's several ways we can easily do that right now. I mean, the summer's, summer's a great time to be around Quest. There's lots of opportunities for really amazing ministry. We already talked about VBS early, but do we, earlier, but do we remember last year we doubled in size from 60 to about almost 130, and there were 22 kids last year that gave their life to Christ. And the number one feedback last year from VBS coming out of it was the thing that the kids all said they liked most often was the teaching. And they had a blast with the games, but they loved the teaching so much. It makes a difference. Would you volunteer? And, and more than that, would you invite not only your kids to come, but would you invite your neighbor's kids, your friend's kids, your grandkids' friend's kids? Would you make a simple invitation to invite people to something that could change their life forever? We've got the patio nights that we're talking about now. Those are just simple nights where we're going to have uh, classic rock being played by some. Uh, 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 the first couple of nights are bands that actually are formed within us, and it's just going to be the youth selling brats and hot dogs, and we're going to have cornhole and other games that you can do as you want, but they're just intended to be great nights where you can throw out your checkered tablecloth on the ground, and you can invite a friend who doesn't know Christ to just come and have a fun time getting to know more friends who do know him. Or you can invite a friend who's been alienated by church and they kind of believe but they're not sure to just come and be in friendship with more people. It's just as simple as that. And if that's too churchy, invite them for a barbecue in your backyard or we actually have out on the main table outside, a, 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 I got two of them, so you can have one of these if you want. We have like six pages of 75 things to do, and it's actually labeled 75 things to do with your small group. We just wanted to give the small groups ideas of how to keep a relationship going in the summer just over fun stuff. 75 different activities in town that are, that are family-friendly on the whole that you can go to uh, just to do friendship. It all starts with serving up friendship to people. Will you do that this summer? Can we become that revolution that Jesus is asking us to? We'll describe that a little bit more. But, but have you ever experienced something simple, as, as simple as a friendship or an invitation or maybe even a faith conversation with somebody changing somebody's life? Have you ever experienced that there's no greater joy than that. If you've experienced that, you know that joy to see somebody, the trajectory of somebody's life changed for the good. There's no greater joy. And if you haven't experienced that, it begins with simple invitation. So just in summary, again, I'm at, what I'm asking is one practical application for today's message is this. Invite people to VBS this week. This week. Make all your invitations to VBS so they have time to decide whether they're coming. Make new friends at patio nights and take some of your unchurched friends and introduce them to your friends, whether it's a patio night, a barbecue, a fun thing. That, that, that Just build friendship. Can we just do that? It's simple. Getting back a little more directly in the text, Jesus recognizes the crowd's need for leadership when he steps out of the boat. But if you really observe it, it it's, kind of a, it's kind of a weird response that he has, isn't it? 
I mean, normally, especially if you know you're going to a place that's a hotbed for revolution and, and everybody has a pretty justified reason for the oppression, to, to want to overthrow the oppression and the injustice, and, and you want to be a leader of them, you're going to start by giving a motivational speech against tyranny, right? And then, then you're probably going to move to that, to resourcing them in some way. Maybe you're going to, maybe you're going to make them, get, get them weapons. Maybe you're going to teach them tactics. Maybe you're going to do something. But Jesus it says, just starts teaching them many things. And the text doesn't say what he taught them. But I think it's safe to assume that he taught them the same things he was teaching everywhere else that we see recorded in the eyewitness accounts that we've already read and elsewhere as well. So you think about that. He's talking to them about parables about forgiveness to revolutionaries. He's talking about kindness to your enemy, to revolutionaries. You see, instead of Jesus giving lessons in revolution, he, he teaches them a different way to look at life, a different way to think about revolution. And he, and he serves them through the act of giving them bread. This isn't what the guerrilla leaders were looking for at all. This is not at all what they were hoping for from him. Today, if we were going to see Jesus give us a lesson in multiplying bread... It would more likely be uh, a lesson in how to get diabetes really fast, right? Because we'd be eating too many carbs and we'd be blowing up and getting too heavy. And, uh, you know, unless, of course, it was the bread that my Ph.D. Uh, in art history uncle did who became a self-sufficient farmer. Then he could have a four-pound loaf that was that big. And, you know, the contest then was not how good it tasted. It was could you chew it. In Jesus' day, though, the core symbol of bread was something very different to us. Than it is today. It's the core symbol of giving life is what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is basically saying to them, I'm giving you your life through my word. And I'm teaching you to have life through my deed. The man doesn't live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's a reminder as well that we shouldn't work for a revolution that is that doesn't last that there's something greater, something deeper that lasts. Because we all know that earthly revolutions don't last. Look at the Bolshevik Revolution. Even look at the Chinese Revolution. Romans, they didn't last. Even the American Revolution, it won't last. Jesus is getting at the idea here that revolutionaries want to free things, free people from oppression. But there's a deeper need that all of us feel and a different way to change our culture than through the sword. It's a deeper hunger in all of us. We all hunger for bread. We all hunger for success. We all hunger for meaning. We all hunger for family and security and all those things. But Jesus is saying there's a hunger that is deeper that can only be met through what I'm showing you today. Will you risk inviting people to that? To something that meets the deep need that they all long for? Even when we don't think that they have that need? I mean, how often do we sit with coworkers who seem like they have it all together or with neighbors who seem like they have it all together? We go, I don't know where I'd even start helping them to get a sense of need for God. But, but Jesus is saying every one of us has a need that's deeper, that's the source of true revolution that we need to pay attention to. Even Jean-Paul Sartre, an atheist existential philosopher, 
has this really interesting quote that I ran across this last week. It says, it says this. It says that God does not exist, I cannot deny. So this atheist philosopher is basically asserting there is no God. He's just affirming what he believes. But then he goes, listen to what he says next. He goes on to this. He says, that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. You see, even the most diehard atheist who doesn't think they really need anything has this deep longing that God has put in them for God himself. And that longing is there. God is at work creating hunger in every single person around us, even if they look like they've got it all together and don't have any need. There is a hunger that God is creating that is deeper, that he wants to tap into. And it comes down to Jesus' way of revolutionizing the heart by this focus of learning his compassion and learning to serve life to others as Jesus served life to the crowds that day in a way that they did not even expect. Jesus is saying, I am the revolutionary king. I am the liberator through my words and my actions are demonstrating to you how to do it. Even the actions of the miracle that I did today are demonstrating how and why I am that to you. But that leads me to the second question of this message. Why does Jesus do miracles? Why does Jesus do miracles? I mean, think about it. Okay, so he's with a bunch of zealots. He's with a bunch of revolutionaries. What kind of, rev- what kind of miracle is really going to sell them on following him? I mean, in our minds, if, if we were there, we'd probably go, well, why don't you, Jesus, why don't you do what you say elsewhere? If your faith is good enough, you can speak to the mountain. It'll throw itself into the sea. That would prove to them that I'm worthy of being followed, right? Or why don't you just fly around like Iron Man and throw fireballs from your fist and break the rocks up and make them go splash in the lake and all the kids will laugh and you'll have a good time and everybody will go, man, that's better than my slingshot. Right? I mean, why doesn't he do those things? And yet Jesus never does those signs. In fact, if you really read Jesus honestly, he bemoans the fact that the people demand that kind of sign from him. You see, Jesus' main point in him doing healing and miracles is not to convince us of his raw supreme power, but rather to show us his mission to show us his kindness, to demonstrate his goodness to us and his desire to redeem us. You know, we look at miracles and actually preach about miracles all too often in the American church in a really strange way. You've probably heard this. You've probably heard people talk about that miracles are the breaking in of God into the natural order, suspending the natural laws in order to accomplish something. And yet, that's actually not at all what Jesus is saying here. Because, because really, it's the natural, when miracles happen, it's the natural breaking into the unnatural. It's the kingdom of God, the way creation originally was done, breaking into the corrupted kingdom of Satan and the corrupted kingdom of man. You see, we have to remember that God didn't create disease. He didn't create us to have the pain, the relational problems, all those problems that we have. God didn't create us for anxiety and worry and stress and all the health problems that come with that. He didn't create it. That stuff is unnatural to the way He created us. The miracles are actually pointing back to the way He created us, the way God created us and all of life. The miracles are natural life. They are true life being demonstrated here and now. 
And the miracles are also pointing forward to the fact that his redemption is sure to bring it back to the way natural life is intended to be at the end of time. You see these revolutionaries and all of us who see the oppression and the hurt and the pain in our own families and the culture around us, we all want to subvert those things and bring justice and bring goodness and bring revolution. But Jesus knows that the commodity that helps revolutionaries is hope. And he's giving a hope here that is more encompassing. It's more transforming than the sword It's more encompassing, more transforming than any political vote or political win we could have or any legislation we could make happen. In fact, Jesus in this passage is in a sense almost dissing the idea of revolution as we normally think about it. He's he's saying that political solutions aren't the answer. We're frustrated in our nation right now because of all the problems and we've all got different views of what those solutions should be and we think it's going to be done by political solutions, by the government intervening. And Jesus is saying, no, compassion is the answer. Friendship, serving life to one another. Jesus being the bread of life for all of the deepest needs of our hearts. And Jesus is directing the crowd's heart and worry away from their primary idea of what revolution is and and the ability to win, to be able to legislate things, to solve poverty and pain and oppression and religious problems. And he's challenging us to focus on solving the problems through a revolution of service and compassion that has no dependency whatsoever on power, on the law, on government. To fight the fight against poverty and greed is it's not exclusive to Christianity, is it? We all know people around us who are fighting that. In fact, some of you here may be skeptics of, of who Jesus is, and you may be very motivated by that drive for compassion, for justice, and, and freeing those who are poor and helping them, dealing with greed. And yet, if you're here today and and you're a skeptic of Jesus and having that same compassion, there's an issue that I want you to think about. You are fighting that battle for justice, for social justice, for freedom for people in a closed system. You see, your system, if you don't believe in Jesus, is this natural evolutionary system. It's, It's survival of the fittest. And within that concept, how can you honestly sum up enough, enough courage, enough, enough moral outrage to even make the fight against what is ultimately inevitable and natural? If you believe in the survival of the fittest, if you believe in evolution, if you believe that stuff, then, you know, it basically says the fit are going to survive and those who aren't fit aren't. So why would you fight against oppression anyway? Why would you fight against poverty in that worldview? The gospel, Jesus, through his miracles and through this setting, is saying that disease and poverty and hunger and pain are not natural. It's not inevitable that it will be survival of the fittest. It's not that the weak are dispensable. In the end, it's not. To the inevitable it's not inevitable for the survival of the fittest. And Jesus says, if you're, if you're about bringing redemption to the poor, if you have compassion for justice, then you're about what I'm about. 
And his invitation is, would you come to me and let me empower you even more with a compassion that truly brings change? Because politics never will bring the change. And yet, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about this and the staggering changes that need to take place in our culture around us, even just in families around us, even in our community, even in our neighborhoods, I feel so unqualified. I feel so inadequate to the task. Don't you sometimes? Doesn't it just feel overwhelming and what's the use? Or do you have people in your life that you believe it's just, it's just impossible to reach them because they're just, they're just so hard against God? They're just so hard against life. That's no use. You see, Jesus in this passage is making exactly that point, which is the third point. These revolutionaries, are, these revolutionaries and us, who he's calling to be that, are completely, impossibly unqualified. You see, at the end of the day, the disciples see all this going on, and they make a reasonable, wise statement, right? Right? They go to Jesus and said, send the people back to the villages so they can get something to eat. You know, got a great conference speaker. You're the conference speaker. It's fantastic. But we didn't plan catering. So let's send them all away. And Jesus' response, of course, would be, you wise suggestion, boys. I, I really, I'm really hungry and I hadn't thought of that, right? No, he says, you. And the grammatical emphasis is very clear here. The emphasis is upon you. You give them something to eat. And you see the disciples going, Jesus, you're crazy talking again. I mean, eight months of salary, eight months of wages, you want to waste that on just giving these people bread when they could go back and get it on their own? That's what you really want us to use the money for? And can you think of all the logistics, Fifteen to 20,000 people, and they're in a rural area, and they're sending their disciples out to five or ten or twenty different families and, or, or villages just to try to come back? I mean, it's just, it's just insane, right? Jesus, you're asking us the impossible. And that's the entire point of Jesus' ask of the disciples that day. And that's the entire point of Jesus' ask of what he calls us to do so often today as well. You see, until we can see that Jesus is asking us the impossible. He's asking us the impossible when it comes to change. He's asking us the impossible when it comes to influencing our culture. He's asking us the impossible when it comes to us having enough moral character and change to really live up to things. We just don't have it. He's asking us the impossible when it comes to purpose. And until we realize that he's asking us the impossible, we'll go nowhere. And Jesus' response to them is simply, what do you have? Really? That's what he's saying to him. What do you have? Five loaves and two small fish. Jesus, 20,000 people. Five loaves, two small fish. And Jesus works with what they have. And it's only as they go out in the full import of their inadequacy, it's only as they start to serve in the midst of their inadequacy that the power shows up. Do you personally, you, yes, you, each and every one of us here, Do you feel up to the task of transforming your family, of transforming your workplace, of transforming your neighborhood? It feels impossible, doesn't it? Your thoughts when you think about that are, how can I break through those barriers? How can I help people that I know move past their questions? I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough time. 
You even probably think, how can I pray for healing for someone when I haven't seen it like I want to in my life? I'm so inadequate. And Jesus simply says to the disciples, what do you have? He doesn't ask us for what we don't have. You know, I wonder, in looking at this sometimes in, in this passage, I wonder, when, I wonder when the multiplication actually started. Do you ever wonder that? I wonder if, if the, the multiplication started happening as soon as Jesus prayed, or, or I tend to think just maybe because this is my own experience too often with God, that it probably happened on the 12th or 20th person. So the disciples are taking this meager amount of food out and, and giving it away, and it's just going away, and they're looking over their shoulders, Jesus going, Jesus, nothing happened. Told you we're going to be out like next person. Have you ever experienced that where it just you get into something and it, it reminds me of John Wimber's own story that I think I've said one other time here. John Wimber was the founder of the Vineyard Movement of which we're associated. And he tells the story that he prayed for 500 people for healing before he saw one healed. And history and records would say that his prayer for healing for people probably saw more people healed than most people in America. Prayed for 500 people before one healing. That's that's moving out, even in our in a, even in our inadequacy, isn't it? Even in our inability. Tim Keller, who you've heard me reference before, but if you may not know, Tim Keller is the pastor of one of the largest churches in America, based in New York City. And this last year, he was actually identified as one of the 25 most influential people in New York City, which says quite a bit of something for a pastor to be. Uh, identified that way. He talks about it this way. He says the church is always in a crisis and always will be. The difficulties, limitations, lack of people and money, misrepresentation, we are not only always to do our work in spite of these things, they are the conditions, he says, requisite for the doing of it. What do you have? Regardless of the inadequacy, start serving there. So in summary, and Dusty, you can come. Jesus meets the revolutionaries of his time, the zealots looking for Moses, and he blesses and he breaks the bread in front of them, basically, basically saying, I'm better than Moses. And we see in Mark 14:22 again, Jesus once again, he blesses and breaks bread, and he says, this is my body, when he institutes communion for us. And we see Jesus again on the cross. Blessing and breaking. He is the bread. Blessing and breaking. Saying, Father, he's blessing and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he, he blesses his enemies and then he breaks for them by serving life to them. You see, Jesus is not the king of a kingdom that teaches us how to save ourselves. He's not the king of a kingdom that says, I'll let you go out when I teach you how to be adequate in and of yourself. He's the king of a kingdom who saves you. Period. He does it. Through a revolution that is not an assertion of power. It's not an assertion of being good enough. It is done through the giving away of power in compassionate and generous friendship. He's described as the friend of sinners. While completely inadequate, each one of us. That's what he asks each and every one of us to do. To serve a multitude bigger than we're adequate for. Life. 
And when I stop and when we stop and think about it, and I'm so fully in here because I get caught in this all the time myself. When I, when I stop being held back by, by, by my inadequacy, when we stop being held back by our inadequacy, by the things that we don't have and the things that we wish we had, by the knowledge we don't have and the knowledge we wish we had, by the character we don't have and by the character we wish we had, when we stop being held back by those things, when we stop being held back by the fact that we don't have the programs that we wish we had and and we wish we had this skill but we don't, and when we stop being held back by the fact that we don't have the money we wish we had and need and want, and we simply start following Jesus in this revolution, experiencing His heart of compassion and serving whatever life looks like in whatever setting we're in, whether it's serving bread to the poor literally because they don't have it, whether it's serving friendship to someone who's lonely, whether it's, whether it's serving a meal to someone who's sick and hurting, whether I don't care what it is. When we start just joining Him in His heart of compassion and serving life, simply what we have. Then we get to see His power. Then we get to see His transformation. And you know what, Quest? We are called to stuff here individually and corporately that is so far beyond our adequacy. I mean, I just went back through this last week and said, here's what Quest is called to. God has placed us in a community of wealth and He's called us to save the people bound by wealth bound by needing to always look good and help them find rest from the striving, rest from the anxiety and ask them out of compassion to give generously and make an impact in the world. And it's easy for us sometimes to think, oh, we're just out there in the community, but I was on the Wall Street Journal. They have this little calculator based on 2010 census that says, if you make X amount as a household, what percentage are you in? And we typed in $75,000. If, you, if your household income is $75,000, then that means there's 69 out of every 100 people who are less well off than you. If your combined income in your household is 100,000, then 8 out of 10 people you walk across the, on the street are less well off than you. We are wealthy and God is calling us to make a difference by calling people out of the trap of money and the anxiety of image and greed. He's called us to rescue those who are bound by religion or those who are alienated by religion from even following Jesus. He's called us to transform the lives of children. He's placed us in in communities with children everywhere. He's called us to transform the lives of children so that their lives are better than ours. Their faith is stronger than ours. He's called us to multiply churches in unreached places like Russia and and through the international ministry all over the world. And he's called us to not only grow a church here that is good, strong, and healthy and reaching people, but to multiply churches all over this state, all over this city, to multiply campuses. And those things are all beyond our adequacy, aren't they? They are bigger than we could even hope to think and dream at this point. And yet that is what God has called us to. Are we adequate to the task? Certainly not. But that's God's call. And He's asked us to give. He's asked us to serve. He's asked us to pray. He's asked us to believe. He's asked us to persevere. And we start doing that by simply joining Him in the revolution, by inviting friends 
and serving up life to people in a practical way every every week. You know, we're going to celebrate communion and we're going to do it in a way that the the team backstage before service laughed at me. And so I'm just going to say it the way they laughed at me. I'm going to invite you to come, receive, and leave. We so often approach communion as this thing that is self-centered. It's all about our receiving forgiveness. And yet when Jesus initiated, truly initiated communion on the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. It wasn't self-centered. Communion, when Jesus says, will you remember me, is not so much remembering about how he forgives us, although that's one amazingly beautiful part. But it's a call to this revolution. It's a call to this mission. It's a call to be Jesus to our community. And so I want you to come as we dismiss them. There's not going to be a dismissal after I'm done talking. This is going to be dismissal. The band's going to play. You can come, eat, and leave. Um, I want you to come, and I want you to pray a prayer like this. God, would you break my heart with the compassion that you felt everywhere you went? And would you help me to be the answer to your prayer for workers and leaders? that I could simply be an intentional friend that makes invitations and your power shows up in my inadequacy. Would you pray that prayer as you come? Let me bless you. God, I pray that you bless everyone here, that you would help us this week to experience by your spirit your compassion and that you would help us in the midst of the busyness not to get caught up in that, but to be focused on the greatest thing that could bring change to our hearts and to the hearts of others around us, to serve life to serve friendship, to serve hope, to serve you, the bread of life to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and come and receive. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.